This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Phantomas Meets the Yellow King. The Discord Spy Case. Early to mid-80s SF films. And Philip the Arab. What comes between Once Upon a Time and Happily Ever After? Every dramatic, heartbreaking, and amazing twist and turn of every fairy tale ever told, that's what. Exactly! That's why our friends over at Atlas Games made the storytelling card game Once Upon a Time. Players create an exciting story together using the card elements from fairy tales. It encourages creativity, decision-making, and cooperation. This classic design by James Wallace and Andrew Rilston has been called one of the top storytelling games of all time. Some might even say the greatest storytelling game of all time. Once Upon a Time is about princesses overcoming danger, foxes dueling pirates, kings searching for lost crowns, and every other fairy tale plot players can imagine. Players tell their own fairy tale using elements on the cards and try to steer the conclusion toward their secret ending. Themes can be all-ages friendly or more mature, depending on the players at the table. Go over to atlas-games.com by May 31st and use coupon code ONCE2023 to get a free expansion when you purchase any three Once Upon a Time titles. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of the empty frame where once we are our collector's copy of Peter Frampton coming alive, double albums once sat, welcome us... <gasps> Robin, the gaming hut has been robbed! Not only robbed, but there's like a death trap involving a snake. This, this just isn't on. It's not good. I'm glad we didn't eat those Doritos. We just crunched them as we passed for the euphony of it because I feel like the orange dust is now poison... Oh no, who could have allowed such a thing into the gaming hut? It must have been one of our beloved Patreon backers, Daniel Feidelman, who innocently asked, looking for a suitable fictional villain to run across the sequences of the Yellow King, I've encountered Fantomas, master of disguises and evil for its own sake. How and why would the royal family of Carcosa use such an unmotivated flamboyancy in their plans over the ages. And by the way, I like the phrase unmotivated flamboyancy. That's a, a nice <laughs> vibe on Coleridge's theory of Iago as motiveless malignity. Yeah, so some people are, are flamboyant for a particular reason and other people, it's just who they are. Just who they are. Just their inner self. Yeah. His pronouns are wow and zoom. Yes, exactly. And murder. <laughs> yes. So Fatomas, of course, goes way back and he's been in a Pelgrane product before because he was a figure that the Surrealists were a big fans of. Mm -hmm. And historically, uh, one interesting thing about him is that he's uh, the production mode in which he was created. He was the first iconic character, the first piece of IP character who was created by multiple writers using sort of a an industrialized, probably not industrialized, but a uh, a team process so that the two writers, uh, Marcel Alain and Pierre Suvestra, who created him in 1911, would get together. They'd break the story, as they say now in the, in the land of TV, and they'd go off and they would write alternating chapters. 
and then they would come back and I guess there would possibly be a polish where they would try to get the style all the same or, or not. <laughs> I can't imagine when they would find time to have a polish session, given that they wrote 32 Fantomas novels by the end of 1913. Yes, and <laughs> he came out in 1911. So, yes, they well, this was like TV, right? It was yeah, TV writing. Right. Mm-hmm. And Elaine continues the series after that alone with 11 more installments, but that is not over a two-year period. That's from 1925 to 1963. And the last one, I think, is actually just a newspaper serial. It's not a, a proper novel. A proper novel. You can find the early ones, at least, in translation for not very much money as ebooks. So anyone who wants to catch up with Fantomas, he is a, sort of a a Arsène Lupin, but worse. So he, he follows Lupin. Lupin, of course, is the, the gentleman burglar who commits all sorts of crimes, but of course draws a line at murder and is ultimately, a, you know, he's an anti-hero because he, the people he's stealing from deserve it. Whereas Fantomas crosses the line into being a sadistic, horrible killer who delights in evil for its own sake. And the actual hero of the story is Inspector Jouvet, who, uh, hunts him down and tracks him over the the course of all of these adventures. You may know the images of the covers from, uh, he's basically, you know, a guy in formal wear, including a top hat and your classic sort of, you know, eye mask, but he can disguise himself as, as anybody. Yeah. That's one of his powers. He's a master of disguise. He's a super plotter. He can escape from anywhere. And he sort of, as we've hinted, delights in, outraging society that, that he's sort of the joker in many ways although he's not overtly crazy he's just overtly awful <laughs> and that's sort of the the joy of him i guess to the uh, belle epoque and uh right up to world war one french audiences was that they lived in a, a republic sure but they definitely noticed social class and they definitely liked the idea of a bunch of people being buried in a sand pit and smothering to death they right. thought that was fun. Yes, and, and even like betrays his own children over the course of the series. He's a horrible, horrible dude. All, all around bad dude. Therefore, exactly the sort of person that Carcosa would enlist for their schemes and uh, stratagems. I guess we should cover the the other expressions of pop culture, though, that you might find him in. Louis Fiad did five films with Fantomas in them. He also, of course, did Irma Vep, Les mm-hmm. Vampire. And there's a recapitulation of the series done as sort of a campy thing in the 60s with uh, Jean Marais. So if you search online for a picture of him and instead of having a guy in a mask and a top hat, you see somebody with a blue face. That's the Jean Marais version, which is goofy and campy. And we'll get to another iteration of uh, Fantomas maybe a little bit later. But there is no jiggery-pokery one needs to do to combine the backstory of Fantomas with the period of the Paris section of the Yellow King because his backstory establishes what he's up to in 1895 and a little bit before that. He is 28 years old in 1895, so perfect age for villainy. The first date given in his uh, his backstory is from 1892 when he has adopted the guise of the Archduke Juan North. And from the name Juan, you know that, of course, he runs a German principality of Hesse-Weimar. We learn that at, at that point he was arrested and imprisoned. And then in our actual uh, year in which Yellow King Paris is set in 1895, he is in India where either he has a daughter with an unnamed woman or possibly his 
Indian prince acolyte uh, has the daughter. There's some question about that. But of course, 1895, there's 12 months in that year. He doesn't have to spend all of them in India, and he could certainly be getting up to a bunch of evil in Paris. And it's not hard to imagine that the uh, motivation for all of his sadistic betrayal and celebration of evil and toying with people is exactly a reflection of what the uh, king in yellow appears to be up to. Uh, maybe uh, the sort of thing that uh, Camilla and Casilda are also engaged in. So it may simply be a matter of he was already a, a crooked dude. And in 1895, he reads the king in yellow. Right. Maybe he's been sick after his return from India, maybe has a touch of malaria. He, he might have he might have read it on the boat, and when he arrives in India, a mysterious woman greets him at the dock and takes him to a remote palace, and they have a baby together. And it turns out that woman was Camilla and or Casilda, and that is what sort of sets him on his storied career as a legendary evil figure, just literally impregnated with Carcosan energy, right? Right. And so your your story in Paris can be that he is the foil, right? He's, he is obviously an adventure hero in the same way that the standard D and D character, the standard player character is, he just turns to desperate wrongness and his turn is encountering Carcosa. And so your characters who are not evil, they may recognize, you know, Monsieur North. He's just returned from India. He looks a little pallid. Maybe he's had a fever, you hang out a bit, and then you recognize, oh, we've fallen in with literally the definition of the bad companion, but you are maybe drawn to his thumbing his nose at the social structure because you're Americans and you don't believe in this stuffy old French social structure necessarily. And so he becomes a not just a bad guy, a villain to fight, but also a foil. He's he's you if you give in to Carcosa and look at all the fun he's having. All you'd have to do is not mind all the murder and betrayal. And the main action of his stories begins in 1911. So Inspector Jouvet is not on the scene. And so yeah. you, the American art students, are the ones who have to attempt to uh, repel whatever uh, horrors he is, he is cooking up. And if he is imbued with Carcosan energy, he can then continue on through the different eras and timelines and therefore uh, could still be around in 1947 of the Continental War. He could have been infused with energy and be just as youthful as ever, or you could have a sort of war machine cyborg version of him. Or maybe its daughter of Fantomas emerges from India. Yes, you could do the old thing where the, uh, just as the player characters are, have different counterparts in different eras, you could have a counterpart of uh, Fantomas. You could have someone who's, you know, just reading the Fantomas novels and, uh, and then you're, you know, a fellow soldier becomes more Fantomasi over time. Or he reads the Fantomas spy novel, The Yellow Document, or Fantomas of Berlin, which is not actually about Fantomas, but it was written by Alain in 1919 in English. And just like the, you know, King in Yellow was written in English and then translated, there is a possibility that Alain, having sipped deep from the draft of Fantomas, is capable of sort of transmitting this yellow energy into uh, 1919 and then laying the, you know, the, it, it'll spring out in 1920 when the Castain Re Revolution happens in America and the yellow document becomes sort of a an entry drug or a covert version, a coded version of the play and, you know, deciphering it. Maybe it's the cryptology department of one of the war powers has deciphered the yellow document and discovered, oh, we've just deciphered the king in yellow. 
all the fun, you know, blows up there, beginning with the intelligence apparatus, which is not not necessarily not the way things go in the real world, frankly. One of the fun bits of the Yellow King game is the way that different characters recur and are recapitulated and reconfigured over time. Well, in the case of Fantomath, there's already an example of that because in the 1960s, the same time as those campy movies with Jean Marais, there is a Mexican Fantomas comic. And in fact, if you were from Latin America, you'd be going, what's this guy with the top hat? What is this? Um, the guy I know is Fantomas, you know, looks sort of more like Santo. He looks like a Mexican mass wrestler. And he is a little bit more like our San Lupin in that he just uh, steals things and en- enjoys that. And it has sort of a 60s spy vibe about it. So in the aftermath setting, uh, which is a present day alternate reality where everything is bad and you're escaping from the recently defeated totalitarian uh, government, you could have, you know, someone who took on the guise of that Fantomas still lurking around and uh, be someone that you need to uh, track down. In an interesting footnote, the magical realist uh, novelist Julio Cartazar detourned one of these comics for a uh, book called Fantomas versus the Multinational Vampires, where he <laughs> uh, takes one of these comics and then, you know, fills them full of uh, his uh, leftist take on politics. Which I guess is your Knights Like Agents takeoff point, if you want. And, and then in the normal setting, well, Fantomas is just a character in old movies and comics, and it's a character that they're keep trying to reboot and not quite successfully. So maybe you go to a Fantomas movie that finally gets off the ground and then uh, weird things happen or, or they don't. Maybe there's just a, you know, a little resonance and the players think that that's where things are going to go. And it uh, winds up not doing that. And I, I should circle back to uh, Fantomas in the dreamlands because of course the surrealists loved him as a symbol of anarchic rebellion and unreason and uh, they sort of recast him in their mind as, well, first of all, a cool thing to paint and write about, and yeah. also a rebel against the order that they uh, thought that they would shatter through their art. And so in Dream Hands of Paris, this focus on Fantomas causes a simulacrum of him to uh, manifest in the dreamland so that your Trail of Cthulhu characters uh, can go to the dreamlands and interact with uh, Fantomas as well. I guess for the, um, this is normal now, if the players already know that Fantomas is a powerful carrier of Carcosan energy in 1895, and they've dealt with his daughter during the wars, and then he's blessedly gone in aftermath, or there's, you know, a, a terrorist group inspired by Fantomas that they have to put down, and then in this is normal now, maybe the guy that they're worried about is an obsessive collector of Fantomas memorabilia, and all all of the various Fantomases that we've talked about are present in this guy's life, and he becomes a gateway through which the Carcosan Fantomas energy begins to seep through into the This Is Normal Now world. And, you know, th- the notion of obsession as identity becomes, you know, one of the Carcosan checkpoints that, of course, goes all the way back to the original Chambers stories. This notion about being obsessed with this secondary world is what drives you into the arms of the king in the play. So being obsessed with the secondary world of Fantomas, I think, makes a a lovely chilling resonance for some of us with more bookshelves about things that don't bear close examination than others. Right. There's actually a creature uh, or enemy in the This Is Normal Now book, The Stands, and the mm-hmm. stands are obsessed with some sort of element of fandom or pop culture. So you can create a stand. A Fantomas stand. A Fantomas stand. And uh, I think that's so tightly wound up in a bow that we'd better get out of here before it unravels or before 
another death trap shows up. So let's see what's on the other side of this here commercial. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1 to 1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one player, one GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. They can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press website. Store or drive through RPG. It's time once more to undergo a retinal scan, perhaps even do a background check, because uh, once you do that, you'll be entirely trusted by the national security state and utterly cleared to listen to another episode of the Tradecraft Hut. And I guess this is a bit of a ripped from the headlines co-promotion because we're going to look at a very recent event that sort of typifies the difference uh, once again behind real world spying and how exciting and glamorous it is and the spying that we want to have in our games and of course i'm alluding to the jack Teixeira case who's the 21-year-old soldier in the 102nd Intelligence Wing of the Massachusetts Air National Guard who has been arrested for dropping all manner of highly secret documents on his Discord channel where he hung out with his friends. So this is a very online edition of a very online dude who uh, is in a a bit of a pickle. Yeah, this is one of those things that if you hadn't watched it unfold in real time, you would think, oh, this was made up by some angry left-wing critic of America's military intelligence complex, because surely this can't happen, but in fact it did. This guy was with the 102nd Intelligence Wing of an Air National Guard unit, not even regular army, but National Guard, and apparently was the person in charge, and I want to make sure I have this right, because... He was basically the person who was in charge of transmitting the document pictures to other meetings, to important meetings, not that he was carrying them around in a briefcase. He was like the IT guy, right? Wasn't that the story? Right. And, And part of the issue here is that, especially in the Army, the top brass like to have low-level people do things for them. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you would completely ignore all need-to-know protocols and just have, you know, the equivalent of the most entry-level person have to have access to all of these stuff because goodness knows, uh, you know, if you're a 50- or 60-year-old officer, you you know, you, you don't do your own computer stuff. No. And someone's the IT guy somewhere, and these are Joint Chiefs of Staff briefing documents. So, the Washington Post, which has seen more of them than I think 
most people have for however reason. And when I started for this segment, I thought I will just go to any of the nine places I've seen them online and download them and look at them. Well, many of those places no longer have that link. So Weird. well done, CIA, as always. <laughs> you've, you've prevented Americans from seeing them. That's half of the battle, I'm sure. But they're briefing documents for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they're generally relatively high-level summaries, similar to the intelligence summary that the president might get. And in fact, they might even be the intelligence summary the president might get, except in a colorful PowerPointy type form. So they don't have like the name of our agent in Russia or whatever, but they have data that, you know, one could imply can only come from an insider in yeah. a certain area. So hey, for wait, example, this is Sergei's turn of phrase. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's not even Sergei's turn of phrase. It's there's only four people who have access to this information and, you know, two of them are Putin and Shoigu. So one of those guys must be a Russian spy. Right. And so, for example, there was information that Mossad was encouraging the judicial reform protests in Israel and Mossad, one assumes, is pretty good at backtracking where leaks come from in Mossad. So the fact that this allegation makes it to a joint chiefs of staff briefing instead of Twitter, where it's been all over Twitter during the, the protests, then Mossad knows they've got a clean house. And so even if it doesn't name the guy, if you're dealing with a professional intelligence agency, as opposed to the CIA, then they are basically capable of shutting down sources. And, you know, at the very least of saying, well, we're not going to talk to the Americans for a while because they literally give secrets to everybody. And that is what has happened. That's the real fallout. Not that we've been revealing our brave agent in Beijing, but that spies in Britain and Australia and France and Germany and Israel are all suddenly keeping their mouths shut and not sharing information with the CIA the way that, you know, they're supposed to. Right. And a lot of this is telling allies mm -hmm. something they already know, but it's awkward for everybody when they're once again reminded of it. When, which when it's dumped that, out on Discord. When it's dumped <laughs> out on Discord, which is that, of course, the... U.S. and not just the U.S., but they're the ones who spend the most money at doing it and are the best at it, spy on their friends as well in order to get the upper hand in meetings and know what people are really thinking, and uh, mm -hmm. including on the Ukrainian government, which is a little bit of sand in the gears of what should be a nice, smooth working relationship where you never find out the extent of the, of the spying on you that's, uh, that's happening. And so in historical spy cases, the common threads are ideology, people who do it because they're actually committed to the uh, ideology of the other side. There seems to be a, a bit of that in the Teixeira case. He seems to be sympathetic to Putin, although what we can really say about what his motives are are, uh, are not great. Uh, there's often money. Money's a big one. And then in his case, particularly though, it seems to be about status. And in this case, it's you know, not broad spectrum fame or rising in a big organization. Apparently he was, you know, disaffected with the military already, but just impressing his, his buddies on a, on a discord server, which to get, I guess, a segue into the next part of this is to how to handle the disconnect between the seriousness on one level. Cause as you point out, people who are sources could be in very big trouble, but on the other, other level, because it's so, mundane it's a discord server and most listeners to this will be on one discord server or another it's also seems kind of ludicrous and that goes to something that we both always say which is that the most realistic true portrayal of the way the spy world really works is not a jean le carré novel uh, certainly not a born film it's 
burn after reading where everybody's a, a goof and there's a, a level of uh, comic nonsense to it. And that's not unique to this case. That's actually kind of standard. Yeah. The, the level of, of comical nonsense in this case specifically is sadly not unique. It's just, you know, much like the government of, of Israel, which knows full well that America is spying on it. We don't like to be reminded that all of our military intelligence is handled by ticked off interns somewhere. So he drops the thing on discord to show off for his little discord buddies, which are, you know, just a knot of ticked off adolescent dudes on discord, which I assume describes zillions of people. But one of them, obviously, you know, when you see something cool online, you, you copy it, and download it, which I should have done. And then they all admired to share his meme powers, right? Uh, he was great at memes in Photoshop. And so they just treated this as another meme. And what do you do with memes? You share them. Well, especially because, you know, Teixeira seems to have not been averse to Russia, you know, winning the war, but other guys in his group were, you know, on Ukraine's side. And so when they got a chance to win a fight on Reddit, they were, oh, you think you know what the real casualties are in Ukraine? Here's a top secret briefing that shows that I'm right and you're wrong. And that is how they get to the attention of the wider world is someone is using to win fights on Reddit. And someone says, oh, that you just made that up. He says, no, I don't need dumps another 40 of these documents out. And it gets posted sometime in March. It takes over a month for anyone in the intelligence agencies to recognize it, which means that, you know, we are building a new barn and locking the door. We're not even dealing with the old stolen horse situation in this. And it gets spread all over Reddit. It's probably still on Reddit. If I dug around deeply enough, I could have found the, at the very least, the first 40 pages that, that got dropped initially. There's theoretically a hundred pages total of the, of the leak. And that might be, you know, back channel to figure out what briefings this guy you know, literally pushed send on. And, and so those documents basically are spreading throughout. And then people began photoshopping those documents to make the other point, which is why for a bit, the CIA and the, and their, you know, mouthpieces in the press were all saying, Oh no, these are all Russian forgeries. Uh, nothing to see here. We didn't screw up immensely, but of course it became too obvious that they had because sure individual Russian jerks are, you know, badly photoshopping the numbers to make it look like Russia's casualties aren't so bad, but you can tell, first of all, that they're easily photoshopped. And second, the original is still out there and doing the damage that it's doing. So how do we acknowledge this reality in games with a spy flavor without wrecking what players want to see in a spy game? Can you start a Knights Black Agents campaign with the spies being burned because some intern drops their images onto a discord server and it turns into a meme. Yeah. I mean, that's, if you want to burn the spies that way, that can certainly be part of it, or they can be part of an operation that is, you know, makes its way to the joint chiefs of staff briefing or to another briefing that gets dumped. And then their mission is cut off and their, you know, government denies all knowledge type situation screwed. I think another way though, is to use it as a source of a, of a dump, right? That the vampires, these are, you know, if anything, older and more tech averse than generals. So their interns are dropping things somewhere on Vampire Discord, on Renfield Discord. And that can be a goal for the player characters to infiltrate Renfield Discord and, you know, draw out a, a document dump from the from the vampires. And 
this actually makes it easier to believe that actionable intelligence falls into the hands of scruffy outsiders with a URL pass, as my friend Josh once described Knights Black Agents characters. And so, you know, you don't have to worry about, oh, how did we hack the Pentagon? You didn't hack the Pentagon. You got on a Discord server with one guy who had misapplied clearance. And that's all you needed to do. And that is all you need to do, apparently. Right. In the world of the Esoteris, the Ordo Veritatis may be undermined by a leak of this sort. It may be that an Esoterror cell, uh, they kind of specialize in looking for the sort of grandiose, disaffected characters who might show up on a fictionalized version of the Thug Shaker Central Discord. So they're just sort of gathering people and looking for them and they find out that uh, somebody is associated, uh, you know, has access to top secret documents and he's egging him on, show me more, show me more. And what he's really trying to get them to do is, you know, break into the Ordo Veritatis files. Of course, the Ordo Veritatis is connected to all of the different uh, Western security agencies. And so this could be, you know, a way in which the super rare photos of the horrible demons that you're supposed to be extremely cleared to find uh, wind up again on the internet. And of course, once you have one of those images on your computer, it's a J-horror situation and something's crawling out of the monitor. <laughs> yeah, the um, the notion that the sort of leak to promote dissension, I could, I could absolutely see the, not that, I mean, because the part of the thesis is that Ordo Veritatis is good at their job, but at some point they have to coordinate with national security bureaucracies and military bureaucracies. So it's the guy at the Pentagon whose job is to take the call from the Ordo and his intern dumps the data sheet out. And it's, it's a thing where I think that the esoterrorists who work in England are, you know, taking advantage of the sudden distrust in the English Ordo Veritatis to make their move. And that is, you know, why suddenly things have gotten worse in your home campaign location or whatever is that, you know, now parts of the Ordo are not talking to each other because they don't know who's been compromised, not in a esoteric way, but just in a regular way. And they have a, an actual regular human mole hunt to go through before they can get back to, you know, strengthening the veil between the worlds. Right. Right. So I guess the, the overall answer to how not to let the mundane reality of news stories like this uh, ruin the fun is to have the mundane element, but then have it also attach to something that's genuinely scary and, and horrific. And so I think both of these examples are ones in which the bad guys, you know, take advantage of the, the Schmendrick who is accidentally or on purpose, but foolishly release something. And then that has a consequence so that you still have the sort of uh, Coen brothers level, but then attached to that, uh, there is also a, uh, a, a Cronenberg level as well. Well, yeah, I mean, and that again is sort of the point of not just spy stories, but certainly spy games is that there is the exoteric surface that we all see and inside there's a secret world. Well, the surface that we all see is a bunch of Washington bureaucrat lifers screwing things up, but on the inside, there is a secret world where things get real and whether real is vampires or esoteric or magic or just capable special ops is, I guess, up to the individual player or individual GM. Well, now that we've summed up, it's time for us to uh, see uh, what's waiting for us in the unclassified segment that waits for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message.
The best of Ask Figeln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from the depredations of Fantomas by joining such stalwart Patreon backers as... Jim Crocker! Tony Kemp! Alex Johnston! David Muscar! And Fred Kish. Once more, the projector rattles. Once more, the popcorn pops. Once more, we make our way over whatever that is on the floor to the center aisle, the center seats of the cinema hut, and settle in for our science fiction cinema essentials film festival, which is gotten into, I think, is the Anno Mirabilis year of science fiction 1982. We're still in 1982, and up there on the screen, Robin, I think maybe there's a bicycle flying against the moon, one of the literally most iconic images, not just in science fiction film, but in all of film, because E.T. the Extraterrestrial is, I think, that interesting case of a film that, as an adult, you can watch it and appreciate it as a film, but if you see it as a kid maybe a little younger than I was when I saw it, it literally rewrites your DNA. It, it's it's like Nirvana. Never mind. It, it just absolutely changes who you are when you come out of it. It's a, it's a gigantic, powerful children's movie, and it's specifically aimed at children, and it is one of the probably 10 best science fiction films ever made. Steven Spielberg, E.T., right. do we need to even summarize it? It's so legendary. Well, we can very quickly summarize it in that a young suburban boy named Elliot meets a, a sort of weird, lumpy, cute alien. And, uh, well, the real summary is it's the man who fell to Earth for kids. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's an alien Christ figure who comes down, brings a connection to Elliot, which is what he needs, and uh, he dies and is risen and goes back to heaven at the end. And this is what's going to kick off what is the next big thematic leitmotif that's going to start reverberating through science fiction cinema, which is Messiah's. And he's a, a pretty nice, rubbery, nubbly Messiah, as Messiahs go. Unlike a lot of the Messiahs we'll be encountering, is uh, is not also an ass-kicking super killer. And as you say, it's still a very powerful film. I, like you, was a little older when I saw it, but it's still a marvel of the manipulative powers of uh, Steven Spielberg and one of his best of his films in that populist mode. And now, Ken, we come to something we, we alluded to Star Trek One earlier. We said it was not an essential, but Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan by Nicholas Meyer, also from 1982, is very definitely a brilliantly executed cinematic realization of the Star Trek TV show that takes advantage of the bigger budget and the ability to do a really great starship battle. The, the other one was a remake of an episode. This is a sequel to a classic episode, Ricardo Montalban, that is probably 
uh, certainly his most famous performance and one of his best as the villain Khan and has that real emotion when uh, Spock dies, which of course, spoiler, definitely permanent. That's the last we ever see of Spock. Yep. But it captures and magnifies and makes cinematic the Star Trek show and therefore cements it as a franchise, albeit one that is going to have a few more rocks in its path yes. as it goes along. More, more rocks than path by the time we get to the end of it, but certainly Star Trek II, over and above its triumphs as Star Trek, which I think it's an unusual Star Trek episode in that it is a straight-up naval adventure in the way that very few Star Trek episodes wound up being, but that it absolutely seals the relationship between the three characters, between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, in a way that other films borrow from. This builds and establishes. It takes the show. It's as what happens as these characters are getting too old are getting old enough for that one last job. What does that mean to them? What does that say to them? What are they becoming? And it addresses it while also being, as I mentioned, a bang up naval adventure, which is what it is. And part of it, I think, is that Nicholas Meyer was not necessarily a giant Star Trek fan. He had help from Harv Bennett, who was a Star Trek fan in making this as the producer, but he very much knew about story and he knew about how to tell a story and make everyone compelled by it. And the, uh, the sort of combination of the human and the military makes this, I would argue almost as much a, a, a war film essential. If we ever made a list of those as it does a science fiction film essential, because it does, you know, capture the question of men at war and why are you at war and what happens to you when you go to war and Shatner taking Kirk through that arc of, you know, discovery and then anger, revenge and grief is, you know, it's, he becomes sort of the, the human figure that, uh, that, that tells us all about what war is like, even in space, even against Khan Noonien Singh. Yeah. There's a couple of submarine combat movies that have as much influence on this as any science fiction movie does. Absolutely. And its influence reverberates back into the later TV shows. And as they get bigger budgets and more of a sense of, you know, here's a story arc with a big resolution, you see them calling back to Khan in a way that they're never going to call back to the motion picture. Speaking of callbacks, we're going to now get to something that we talked at, at what will probably be greater length in our horror essential series, and that's The Thing by John Carpenter from 1982. Of course, this is a, a remake of The a Thing from Another World, uh, putatively directed by Christian Nyby, uh, but with heavy contribution from Howard Hawks. And this is transformed not just into the ultimate paranoia on ice thriller, but into a masterpiece of creature making and body horror. And the idea of in, who is been infested with the thing and this one becomes central to it where of course in the other one he's sort of a, a carrot like frankenstein or frankenstein like carrot here it's a gooey transformative alien that can uh, get inside you and change you and make you into a horrible monster again with a great cast and kurt russell once again delivers in a more serious vein for john carpenter yeah this is carpenter going back to the original short story or novella i guess who goes there by john campbell and pulling out what that story is about, because that is what the story is about, is who goes there, is identity deliquescing under alien pressure. And Carpenter takes that from a story of outward-directed paranoia, as it is in Campbell, and turns it into a story of inward-directed paranoia, which I think is part of what makes it, first of all, is what made it 
die at the box office in 1982. We did not want to ask any of those questions. And second of all, it's what makes it an eternally relevant and interesting and powerful film as we go forward, because it turns out we probably should always be asking those questions. And everything you say is, is correct. The, the eighties are the, are the decade where practical effects peaks. And when it's done well, as it has never been done better than in the thing, it absolutely carries the film as much as the packed cast and the terrific writing and direction by Carpenter do it. It's, it's a triumph and it's an interesting case of, you know, being a science fiction horror film. Horror can be a counterpoint in many ways to what the culture is doing in a way that science fiction generally doesn't. And I think that's another one of the interesting things about the thing historiographically, I guess. Right. Off mic, we were asking ourselves, why is this series so much longer even than the horror one? (laughs) And one of the answers is that there are many more threads that come together. There are more different templates for science fiction movies. There are more radical shifts in theme over time. But also, there are a lot more things that you have to mention historically that are not essentials. And we're going to come knock three of them off right now. You were speaking of the the apogee of practical effects. Well, the beginning of the end of practical effects is Tron by Steven Lisberger in 1982. The beginning of what seemed like digital effects, but in a lot of ways were practically created simulations of what would later become CGI. It is extremely influential for its look and its theme of being, you know, caught in a video game or in the internet. Uh, the other problem is just it's boring. Yeah, I, I watched it again a while back and I was impressed at how the, the visual direction of the film it looks almost like a silent movie in terms of the way that the sort of blurry computer characters have to emote that that there's a a real interesting quality there that is sadly not picked up by the actual film, but the visuals are more interesting than I think if your memory is just the light cycles, maybe take another look at it and see what they had to do with those uh, to make it work. It's a, it's a fun thing. War games by John Badham is the next in our series of computers going to kill us movies. 1983, Matthew Broderick plays a hacker, you know, well scrubbed who is, impressing a girl and breaks into the national security war games uh, computer whopper and discovers that the national security computer is just about ready to uh, see what happens when it has a proper war game to play and only his ability to out logic at star trek style prevents a global cataclysm it's fun it's in our definitely a, a mainspring of our thread of uh computer movies and world war three movies but it is, I think, at the end, an amiable thriller, but it's not an essential. Yeah, it's a, li- a little too 80s, and it's cheerleading for its hero, and it's kind of, you know, safe and forgettable. And then finally, 2010, The Year We Make Contact by Peter Hyams. This is a lesser effort than Outland, but I think it's worth mentioning for being one of the few actual hard science fiction films, much less mystical than Kubrick's 2001, but not super fascinatingly realized because... On a very realistic spaceship, there's not that much interesting stuff that can happen. Yeah, it was fun to watch. I think it's interesting to see Peter Hyams trying his best not to make a Kubrick film. Um, I I think it's almost more interesting in the negative space of Kubrick than it is as a sequel or anything like that. And it's, it's certainly attractive. By 1984, things that were barely achievable in 1968 are pretty routine post-Star Wars. So it, it looks like a good movie, but as you say, not a lot happens and they have to gin up a superpower crisis to add any tension or drama to the story of Hal not rebelling and being a good computer the way that he was designed to be. Yes, that's the, the thread of this is that we're, we're sorry we, 
we made computers look bad. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't resonate in the popular culture the way that the evil computer movies do. And the last one we're going to tackle uh, this time around, a great example of a sort of a very difficult to maintain tone, which is sort of something that's on the, uh, it's a knowing, winky, campy film, but not a stupid one. It's sort of knowing and campy in a, a fun, smart way. And that's The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension by W.D. Richter, also from 1984, with Peter Weller, who plays uh, a clear analog of uh, Doc Savage. So there's a very bunch of Spirit of the Pulps uh, resurfacing. He's got his great band of uh, sidekicks and heroes, uh, Jeff Goldblum most memorably among them. If, if Wes Anderson remakes one of the films on this list, Definitely, you know, I, I would line up for the Wes Anderson Buckaroo Banzai, hopefully just sequel, because of the, the it ends with a uh, promise of another episode, which sadly, because this is another cult movie that did nothing at the box office and became beloved later, never came to pass. But uh, it's one of the rare sort of comedy science fiction films that does not deliver on you know, it's not a series of gut-busting laughs. It's uh, wry and fun and works because it manages that very difficult tone. Yeah, it's, um, I love it, but I don't like it, I think, as much as you do. Uh, I recently rewatched it in the last few years, and Ellen Barkin aside, the script is doing everything in this movie. Peter Weller is, you know, not sure how he's playing his Doc Savage character. Is he straight? Is he funny? Um, Jeff Goldblum is stealing scenes everywhere. It's just sort of a, a mess. John Lithgow is, is, is overacting even for John Lithgow as the, as the evil electroid, but it's still a shambolic delight to watch. But I really, I, I feel like with the cold eyes of a Hollywood producer, I absolutely understand why this did no business and has no sequel even now when nerds with no math skills are running the world. So I, um, I love it, but I definitely, I might not even say it's essential, but I, it, it, we'd be a poor, sadder world without it. I'll say that. Right. Well, we'll be back next week as we continue 1984, which uh, oddly enough is a very resonant year in science fiction with a, uh, a trio of messiahs. However, this episode isn't over and I hear some, some worrying and clacking on the horizon. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlathotep. 
Orthotap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons alert us to the fact that we're standing next to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And every so often, you know, every show has its recurring motifs, and Time Incorporated pitches in by every so often going, what about this Roman emperor? What if you save him from the fate that befalls almost all Roman emperors? And so this time around, they're looking at Philip the Arab, who not only is interestingly named as Roman emperors go, he comes from the third century, but during a very turbulent period for the empire, his five-year stint managed pretty stable rule in an unstable time until, of course, he was betrayed and killed. So <laughs> the question then, Ken, is can you prevent him from being betrayed and killed, at least, you know, this first time? And what benefits might that possibly have on the time stream? And of course, like all such segments, it begins with a dossier on what really happened in our real history with Philip the Arab. All right. Marcus Julius Philippus. He's born in 204 AD in Orantis, which is now Shabha in southern Syria. It was the province of Arabia, Petraea then. Um, his older brother Priscus was the sort of the, the good brother advancing in the imperial hierarchy, becomes prefect of Mesopotamia and eventually a member of the Praetorian Guard for the youthful emperor Gordian III. When Gordian III's previous Praetorian prefect, who had salvaged the position in Mesopotamia at great cost, mysteriously dies, Priscus says, how about my kid brother Philip? He'd be a good Praetorian prefect. Praetorian prefect is the titular commander of the Praetorian Guard and also by now is almost the imperial chief of staff. He's giving orders for the administration of wherever the emperor happens to be, and that basically gives him authority over most of the imperial bureaucracy. Gordian says, that sounds like a great idea. I'll make your kid brother my chief of staff and immediately dies in a war against Shapur of Persia. Gordian is basically marching down the Tigris River, winning battle after battle until suddenly he stops. And there are questions asked by historians. Did he stop because his Praetorian prefect stopped sending supplies to the army? Did he stop because he was betrayed to the Persians by, say, his Praetorian prefect? Or did he stop because Shapur of Persia is one of the absolute banger figures in world history and a nation maker type level character? And he's just tougher than Gordian the Third and he kills him. And that certainly is Shapur's version of the story. So maybe we shouldn't be casting nasturtiums at Philip just yet. But anyway, with Gordian dead, Philip is in charge of the Praetorian Guard and says, how about me for emperor? He pays a gigantic indemnity to Shapur to buy peace, leaves his brother Priscus in charge in the east, goes to Rome, and bribes the Senate to agree that he's the emperor. The money he uses to bribe the Senate, however, comes from canceling the payoff to the German tribes on the other side of the Danube, and they that perhaps... That can't possibly have any consequences that will come into the story later. No, surely not. And so the Carpi are the first group to invade. They invade Dacia, which is the part on the other side of the Danube, and then Moesia, which is on the Roman side of the Danube, uh, modern Bulgaria. They are defeated in 246. Philip takes credit for it. Perhaps he deserves that credit, perhaps not. And he is able, 
by dint of extraordinary tax measures from his brother Priscus, to throw the biggest party Rome has ever seen, the Ludi Secularis, the Games of the Age, in 248 for the 1,000th anniversary of the founding of Rome. And it's a gigantic festival. Everyone in Rome has a great time. A thousand gladiators are killed in the gladiatorial games. They kill a rhino, Robin. They found a rhino and brought it up to fight gladiators until it died. Well, maybe, so, maybe they should just change the mission to you saving the rhino. Saving the rhino. Well, the rhino is the only morally pure character in this story. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the legions in Pannonia and Moesia, Pannonia being modern day Yugoslavia or modern day Croatia and Serbia, I should say, I guess. And Moesia being Bulgaria, they rebel in 248 and the Goths take that opportunity. Again, they haven't been paid off under another very impressive king named Kniva. He is not, no Shapur, but he's pretty good. And he invades in 248. And meanwhile, all those taxes that Priscus was exacting caused Syria, the province of Syria, his next home province but one, to rebel under Jotapian. And now Philip is up against it. And so his brother puts down Jotapian and possibly dies in the process. He vanishes from history at any way. And Philip is looking around and there's a senator named Decius who is loyal to Philip and has been a good guy and seems like he's got military experience. So Philip sends him to deal with the legions and the invasion. The legions, as they hear a senator is coming, murder the guy who they rebelled to make emperor and say, we're loyal. And the senator shows up, leads them against the Goths. Decius defeats the Goths and the legions, as is the habit of legions at this time, proclaim him the emperor. And this is just to bracket this, this all begins under the Severan dynasty. The Severan dynasty basically comes about because Septimus Severus is the first guy when the legions rebel to make him emperor, he raises their pay. And this creates a perverse incentive. <laughs> so it's like giving your dog a, a treat to get the sock that they stolen out of their mouth. Right. Even if you don't think that the guy running you should be emperor, you probably think you should get a raise in pay. So legions rebelling to make their general emperor is a constant horror during what they call the crisis of the third century, in the middle of which is poor Philip. Decius is marching down with his legions. Philip has got his legions. They fight at Verona in northern Italy. Philip loses because Decius A seems to be a competent warrior, and B because Philip's legions have noticed that they didn't get a, a raise lately. So if they kill Philip, then they'll get to be, you know, included in the big pay raise when we get a new emperor. And so that is indeed what happens. So Philip is betrayed and killed by his own men in 249. The sources differ as to whether or not he'd first lost his battle to Decius or if that was basically how he lost his battle to Decius. Decius seems to have been outnumbered because Philip had the Italian legions, the reserves, and Decius only had the two legions that he was up on the border with. So it seems like it couldn't have been much more than three to two odds and might have been even worse if Decius had left some of the legions on the border to, you know, keep the gods defeated. But e either way, Decius wins, Philip is gone, and then Decius, of course, is immediately slaughtered with his own son by the gods again. And we have another series of soldier emperors, of barracks emperors, as they're called, until Aurelian in 270 becomes emperor, exactly the same way as all these other guys. But he is actually really good at being a general and an emperor and becomes the restitutor mundi because he restores the Roman Empire in 275, leaving a sort of a road out 
for Diocletian to take in 284 when Diocletian reforms the imperial bureaucracy, immiserates the serfs in the process, and uh, stabilizes the Roman Empire for another hundred odd years. So, so the t- dossier did say uh, <laughs> stable by the standards of the third century Roman yes. Empire. And a five-year reign for the third century, for the crisis of the third century, is pretty good. Right. I will say that. And full of tumult and event mm-hmm. that if you want to set a adventure series here, if you want to have your tabletop game occur during this period, there's a lot going on, whether yeah. you're actually uh, engaged in the battles or whether you're off to the side playing all of these rival emperors and potentates and local kings off of each other. There's a, a whole bunch of stuff going on. Uh, rhino rescue, of course, being uh, at the top of the list. So the question then is, what happens if... You decide that Philip, not not a great dude, as we've established, but perhaps a more stability-instilling dude than some of the alternatives. What happens if you keep him around, and, and how do you keep him around? Now, I want to preface this by saying I have given the sort of cynical version of Philip. There is another chain of historiography that wildly includes... Christian historians who note that whatever else was wrong with Philip, he did not persecute the Christians, unlike Decius, his successor. And even at one point, a church father said maybe he was a secret Christian, and that's why he was so nice. That is a way to get good press among a big stream of writers. That probably isn't true, but it is true that he didn't persecute the Christians. And then lately, as historians have broadened out from being wasps, people have noticed that the Severan dynasty, specifically going down to Alexander Severus, who was sort of the role model for Philip, was multi-ethnic, that they began, this begins the tradition of non-Latin Roman emperors. And so you have Alexander Severus, who's Greek or a Hellenized Syrian. You have Philip, who is an Arab. You have a lot of emperors from various bits of the empire and sort of the multicultural historian, if I may use that term, is also generally positively inclined to Philip. And they do emphasize things like the remarkable length of his reign and the general degree of stability, barring three invasions and four rebellions that we know about. And they sort of drift over the, you know, spendthrift parts and the can't do math parts and the gets defeated in battle always parts. So there is a, a school of historical thought. And it is a real school. It's not just people who make wishes that say that Philip was actually a a fairly good emperor and it would have been nice to extend his reign. But I will say that even if we extend his reign, and by the way, getting involved in a legion versus legion fight is the most dangerous thing that I as a time traveler can do. So I suspect the thing to do is either just slip some healthy poison to Decius on his way to Verona. Not or, that you poison people, but you would poison someone. Not that I poison people, but I can find someone who wants to poison Decius and make sure that they're in the same tent as him. Right. You would be totally uninvolved. Then. Right. I'd be, well, I, the rhino and I have an alibi. <laughs> we back each other up. Yeah. So if Decius sort of vanishes in the way that the Legion's previous commander did, you could even just spread a rumor that Decius is, you know, planning to stay loyal and is, just leading them down the primrose path to be punished by Philip, that might even do it. If sort of Philip wins by default at Verona, the trouble is that he is going to walk right into the teeth of the plague of Cyprian, which is maybe smallpox, maybe measles, and according to at least one historian, maybe Ebola, hemorrhagic fever, that kills at least two-thirds of the population of Alexandria. We don't know how many other people it kills, but 
At its height, it was killing 5,000 a day in Rome, which is not trivial. So the plague of Cyprian just cuts the demographic engine right out from under the Roman Empire. And then Caniva is going to invade again, which he does in 250. And Caniva, when he does, he kills Decius and three legions. So I feel like Philip is maybe not the guy to fight off Caniva. And worse yet, Shapur invades again because Decius stops paying him. And obviously Philip broke the treaty in his own history. Shapur invades again in 250, and in 252, he kills 60,000 Romans in a battle uh, in Upper Mesopotamia, and that's another bunch of legions. So if you note that they've lost some number of legions during the Civil War, then they lose three against the gods, then they lose maybe as many as ten, but certainly five plus auxiliary troops under Shapur, extending Philip's reign just makes Philip sadder and sadder and sadder. And at some point, one of these things is going to polish him off. If he's not killed by the gods, he's definitely going to be killed by Shapur because he's going to have to go east to find out what happened to his brother Priscus. So I feel like I do Philip no favors, even if we assume that a 10 or eight year reign for Philip is better for Rome and better for Philip, certainly than a five year one. What we save is the Donatio money for at least three emperors. So that isn't nothing, but in the wake of the plague and two invasions, it is not enough, I would argue. So really, this is the paperwork that you submit when you say, all I did was save the rhino. Right, exactly. Right. This is, you know, my, you know, justification for letting Philip go to his perhaps well-deserved doom is, first of all, saved a rhino. Second of all, have you noticed the level of doom that we're talking about? So did you bring the rhino back with you and send him to a nice zoo or refuge or? The, the the rhino is no is is not a lot safer here in the present than no, he right. this is a, is a worse time for rhinos yeah i think that when i get a rhino a rhino that i bond with and uh, become as brothers with i generally oh, take them what did what did you name him i named him philip so that i can fill so out you the did form say philip. i say philip right philip the rhino not philip, philip the rhino arab. not philip the arab right. entirely different uh, guy but there's a period where the sahara is a grassland circa 13,000 to about 8,000 BC. And that's a really good place to put a rhino. They tend to really love that. There's lots of good grass. They can see enemies coming from any kind of direction. They uh, like to scare people who live by Lake Chad. So that's fun. I, I feel like that's a good place to put a rhino is the Sahara grasslands. Right. That's where I put them. And you can go visit them and give them beets. Exactly. Right. Sugar beets. He loves the sugar beets. Right. Well, we already noted that it'd be a great time to have a bunch of adventures. So I think Let's not keep going after the sugar beets. Let's uh, head on out of this here podcast, but we'll be back a mere week from today with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Prevent the theft of this podcast's precious documents by joining such security-minded backers as... Jim Nutley. Jason Krauss. Peter Williamson. Brian Mannix. And Scott Jones. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>